welcome to Collections by Michelle Brown. I'm your host, Michelle Brown. Each week, we'll be talking with people living between the lines, standing boldly in the crosshairs of their intersectionality and creating change. Tonight, we are talking with the author, Lowane Childry. Lowane is a native of Birmingham, Alabama. His autobiography, Peeling Back the Layers, a story of trauma, grace, and triumph, was selected as one of the top six autobiographies of 2015 by the Colorado Independent Publishers Association. Lowane is also a recipient of the National Edward R. Murrow Award for Journalistic Excellence. In addition, he has won numerous Mississippi Associated Press Broadcasters Award for his reporting with Mississippi Public Broadcasting a statewide affiliate of National Public Radio. In 2014, the Alabama Community College sustained alumnus in the institution's 50-year history. The ACCS award did a $5,000 scholarship in children's name to a deserving Alabama high school senior. During the same year, Lewayne was named alumnus of the year for Jefferson State Community College in Birmingham. He currently resides in Nashville, Tennessee, where he serves on the executive committee of the Nashville Regional HIV Planning Council. Luane also works as a freelance journalist, national voiceover artist, HIV AIDS advocate, and motivational and keynote speaker. Welcome, Luane. I'm so glad to have you here with me tonight on Collections by Michelle Brown. How are you doing? Oh, Michelle, it is so good to hear your voice again. I am doing absolutely wonderful. Thank you so much for having me. Well, I mean, this is just great. I mean, we met at, you know, when Fire and Ink was here in Detroit. And I remember going through the hall, and it's like, you know how I've been there, you know how you've got your books and you've got your table, and you were there. Mm -hmm. And we just started talking, and it was like I had known you my whole life, and, and I knew that from that moment on, I was going to know you the rest of my life. And I remember not having, you know, often I don't carry money, but I saw, read part of your, the back of your book, and I said, I'll be back. And I went and found the ATM to get that money to come back and get your book. And oh, and oh my reading God. It just, re- yeah. Go ahead. Reading it just convinced me even more that, you know, you're my brother from another mother. <laughs> wow. You know, I remember, I, I remember that day vividly. And, you know, just hearing you re- recount it, uh, I'm getting chills just thinking about it because, you know, your spirit was so warm and inviting. And just to be able to share with you, and I could tell that after you read the, the, the jacket of the book, you actually got it and you felt me. And uh, I knew then that we had a connection that will last forever. And look, here we are. You know, it's been over a year now. We're, we're still right. friends. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I tell you, your book, I mean, everywhere from when you were a little kid, and, you know, there are so many parts of it that I got. You know, it was like, I remember doing something like that. I remember doing all that. And it's a powerful story, but I think it also talks about someone being resilient, you know, and what made you decide, you know, I mean, 
to really, you bared your soul. You told your story. What made you, and that's bold. And that, I mean, that takes strength. Sometimes, you know, I think about it and go like, oh, no, I don't want to go there with that. What, what pushed you and said, no, you have to write this? Wow. You know, um, I think somewhere along the way I was compelled. I always knew that I had this story to tell. Uh, I had had so many experiences in life. And uh, it was when I was reporting for uh, public broadcasting, I was doing a story about um, domestic violence. Mm. And in doing this interview, I was interviewing two women at the same time. And during the interview, um, it came up, uh, the question came up about who commits acts of domestic violence. And they started telling me that it's usually people who have um, experienced some kind of trauma in their life, uh, generally unaddressed childhood trauma. And I started thinking about my own life. You know, uh, I started experiencing this trauma at an early age. Uh, when I was just four years old, I survived a deadly house fire that I watched my two-year-old mm-hmm. cousin, Diane, Right after that, um, I was sexually abused by my stepfather. Um, Right after that, I started having issues with abandonment because my mom was going out with her boyfriend, leaving me at home, and I was only like 10 years old. Um, And I started, and and all of these things just started masking themselves, and I started overeating, you know, as a way to mask this pain that I was feeling. And Later on in life, I started acting out with these uh, acts of domestic violence with my my partners. And sitting there talking to those women, I was like, wow, you know, that's me. That's my story. And like I said, I always knew I had a story to tell. And I'm a firm believer that uh, with my story, God, you know, with this story, I feel that there's an, there was an appointed time, and then there was an anointed time. And I think God anointed me to tell this story years ago, but it was after I was able to converse with these women that he appointed me to tell it. And the reason is because during my interview with them, uh, I shared with them something that I'd never done uh, professionally uh, out on an interview. I'd never shared my personal story. And just listening to them, I felt compelled to share my story and told them my thoughts about writing um, my book because by then I had, I had gone through therapy and I, I had overcome a lot of these situations. And I shared with them that I was interested in writing my story. And they said, you must write this story mm. because it's a story that is seldom told, first of all, by African-Americans and especially black men, and then on top of that, especially black gay men. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so it was from that point that uh, I decided the time is now to, to share this story. And I'm so glad I did because uh, it has blessed so many people, uh, not only in, in, the, in this country, but across the globe. I get... Um, I get tweets and emails and instant messages uh, all the time with 
from people telling me, thank you for telling my son's story. Thank you for telling my daughter's story. Thank you for giving my family hope. You know, that's one thing about it. Your book, as I was reading it, it was one of those books where I would read a part and I'd go, oh, wow, and I would, I would want to stop and tell somebody about it. And I know I remember that part where you talked about that, that sense of abandonment and also with your mother. And I was sharing that with a group of women um, who I work with sometimes who are single mothers. Some of them have had all kinds of ups and downs. And one of them said, you know, like she understood what your, why your mother did that, but she, she suddenly understood the effect it had on her child. And the fact that you were able to express that in a way that, I mean, like you said, you were anointed to do this, to, to, to do this. It opened up a discussion amongst these women about how they were living their lives and their, how it affected their children, which was just phenomenal. Wow. Again, <laughs> one of those moments. I still get chills, you know, mm-hmm. from, 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 from people who have actually read the story and actually get it. And I can relate to what you just said because, for me, um, that was one of the toughest parts of this book to write. And, you know, there are a lot of things in this book. Mm-hmm. But that was one of the toughest parts to write because I didn't want to sing I didn't want to make it seem like my mom was a bad mom. Even at 10 years old when all of this happened and my mom left me in Birmingham for a weekend to go and be with her boyfriend in Arkansas, even at 10 years old, I kind of knew that it, she was taking a chance on doing something that would better our lives in the long run. Mm-hmm. I, I, don't, I don't think it was anything, and I know for a fact that it wasn't anything that she was doing malicious because this is not a pattern of, of hers. But I think she, she was taking that chance and doing this in hopes of, of bettering us. And the reason I say that, and, and since we're on that, I guess we can talk about the story a little bit, um, uh, the way it all, it all unfolded. Um, my mom had met this jazz musician after her divorce. She met this jazz musician. She fell in love with him. And he traveled a lot, and he was playing uh, for the governor in Arkansas at this, this, this event that they were having. Well, we used to always go with him to Memphis because he played a lot in Memphis. He was from Memphis, and we used to go there a lot. And my mom started going to Memphis regularly, and I would stay at home with my aunts, my mom's two sisters. It got to the point where she was going so often that um, my aunt said, you know, you're going too much, you're leaving him at home too much, Um, we're not going to be able to keep him. So, you know, the the point was to, to make her stay at home. But instead, um, when they couldn't keep me um, and her girlfriends that would keep me uh, on occasions, when they couldn't keep me, um, my mom decided that uh, she wanted me to stay at home for the weekend. She told me 
not to turn on the lights, not to turn on this, not to go outside, not to let anybody know that I was at home alone, um, and that I think it was it was that um, just wondering if she was really coming back mm. um, that really stayed with me, even through adulthood. Uh, I maintained these abandonment issues. Uh, But when she got back, um, she apologized. And at 10 years old, I I was able to fully embrace her apology. Um, And it never happened again. But just that one time Mm -hmm. affected me for almost a lifetime. Well, you know, and I think that that that's the other thing that comes through in your story is like, you know, and as as you talk about it, and no one gets a manual when you're being a parent. You don't, oh, have I I done this and that? But you loved your mother. It's a beautiful love story. And, And she knew it. I mean, even though, like you said, there were things that you, that you went through and things, but you loved her. And do you feel that in some ways, you know, you talk about how you were anointed to, you went through a lot of things. Do you, do you sometimes you think that it was like a training manual to prepare you to be the point, but when it came time to tell this story, you could tell it in a way that would really impact so many lives? Oh, wow. Yes. <laughs> mm-hmm. I'm, I'm about to cry here. Uh, but yes. You know, uh-huh. I, I know, you know, if I never write another book, which I am, <laughs> but, but, but if I never write another book, this is the book. Uh, uh-huh. This is a book that gives people hope uh, because when they look at me and they say, wow, if he can survive all of that and still come out on top, I can too. You know, and there's so many things in this book. You know, I was interviewing with somebody else, and they started running off this laundry list of things, and I'm like, wow, Mm -hmm. and uh, really tough things. But uh, I'm a firm believer that as long as you continue to believe in yourself and trust in your higher power, you can overcome any and every obstacle. Well, while we go both go get a Kleenex, we're going to take a uh-huh. quick break, and I'll be right. We'll be right back here on Collections by Michelle Brown. I'll be talking to the famous, the not so famous, the lady next door, that person who has that story. Who may you might walk past a million times. And you see them, you're like, what's their deal? I'm going to tell you what their deal is. People who are doing things and making changes in big ways and in little ways, but changes that help us all grow and be more human. This show is for thinkers and dreamers, people who want to know, people who want to see beyond the black and white or their neighbor, uh, their neighborhood, or their their community. I want to get an idea about the world view, a local view. We want to learn things that they can take on and 
make them say, hmm, and apply in their life. My son often said, you know, mom, you'll talk to anybody. And people will always say, I come up and I'll have some interesting people. And it's all like, no, you just collect stories and you just collect people. And so I think that these people who I'm talking to are part of that collection. They're part of these memories, these great stories. They're my collection. My name is Michelle Elizabeth Brown and my show is Collections by Michelle. And we're back here with my very, very special guest and good friend, Lowane Childry. Lowane, I'll tell you, um, there are so many things. Um, and one of the things that I think that, that goes, goes through it is like when you got the diagnosis of that you were HIV positive, many people, you know, I have talked to other people and you're one of those people who, yeah, it wasn't like, okay, hey, I've got this done. You know, I'm going to handle this. You went through the ups, the downs, but you survived through it. Yeah. And, yeah. I mean, but then there are other people who, who do throw in the towel or just go, go like, oh, well, what, whatever, you know. But can you take us through that? that what took you from – that your lowest point to where you are now, to where you can go out and be an advocate for HIV and AIDS. Yeah. Um, you know, when I was first diagnosed uh, in 1991 with uh, HIV, um, I was really in denial. Um, I, I thought I was accepting it. Uh, but I really wasn't, you know. Um, it was it was kind of strange because although I was in denial, I still thought that it was going to kind of be a death sentence for me because mm. I had watched so many people die. I had watched my cousin die. I had watched my partner die. I had watched literally, if, at that time, probably close to 100 people die from, from AIDS. So, you know, for me, it was a, it was a matter of, um, if I can just make it to to see Thanksgiving, then I'll be happy. Or, mm. you know, I, I was looking at my nails to make sure that they looked okay and, and, and that I was still healthy. You know, I was seeing a doctor and all of this. I was on AZT for just a, a short while, but they took me off of it because they said it was too toxic. So I went for years uh, just being checked by my doctor um, and and making sure that my counts were, were good before I went back on any medication because at that time they were so toxic. But anyway, um, I was still, this, this, this thought of HIV was still dancing around in my head, and I thought I was going to die anyway. And so I started living this lascivious life, you know, uh, just doing whatever, whenever, you know, just throwing caution to the wind. And... After about um, four years, I think, after my diagnosis, uh, started getting involved in some really, really bad relationships. And um, I remember the, 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 the first guy, well, let me, let me go back a little bit because 
-hmm. When I was first diagnosed with HIV, I had a partner. And I remember I was so nervous about going to the clinic to test. And the reason I even went to the clinic to test was because I had a female cousin who lived in Atlanta who was doing great, looked great, Mm -hmm. living a, a dream life. And uh, she tested positive for HIV, and I'm like, oh, my God. Yeah, I remember uh, reading Cheryl, that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Cheryl couldn't have done half the things that I had done in my life, you know. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so I was like, wow, I, I better go and get tested. But going to get tested was a big deal because of the stigma associated with HIV. And um, I went to the Department of Health, I was so nervous about it and didn't want anybody to see me going in. So I, my first idea was to park my car like blocks away and walk. But I was like, what sense does that make? Because people will still see me walking into the building. And then there was a parking lot on the back side of the building. And so I chose to park in that parking deck. And even walking in, I was like afraid that somebody would see me, a security guard would see me or, or whatever. Uh, because at that time, in 1991, any gay man seen in a Department of Health had to be there for what, HIV. Mm-hmm. And so I get into the clinic, and um, I kind of, my, my, my nerves were on edge, but I kind of calmed down a little bit because I noticed that the other people who were in there were, you know, calm. They were talking to each other, watching TV, listening to music, whatever. But when they called me back um, to take the test and um, the test came back um, positive, um, I think I was in shock then because uh, I remember the doctor or the nurse or whoever it was saying, uh, you've tested positive for the virus that causes AIDS. And I was like, okay. And and they were like, did you hear me? I was like, yes. And and so they wanted uh, to know, you know, my partners that I've been with and all of that. And, uh, of course, I I shared that with them. But I also knew I had the responsibility to share that with the partners that I've been with myself. But one of the first people that I told was not, a sexual partner, it was my mother. Mm-hmm. Uh, my mom was actually like my, was my best friend. Uh, she and I could talk about anything. My mom used to always tell me, just let me know what's going on and I'll know how to, how to deal with it. And that's, that's still my philosophy today. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's part of the reason, too, why I'm, I'm able to tell this story and with, with complete honesty and, and openness because... I just feel it's important that people know who you are. Um, but I went home, told my mom. My mom assured me that everything was going to be okay. Told my partner. He assured me that everything was going to be okay. Little did I know, he himself, um, well, he, he said that he had tested and that he was not positive. Mm-hmm. I found out three months before he passed away, that he was positive. So he had been in this denial the whole time, Mm -hmm. too. After he passed away, I was like, there is no way 
that I will live my life in in such denial and 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 shame um, and that I was not going to let HIV defeat me and make me fearful. And I think what it did, and, and 10 years, and I was fine for like 10 years. You know, it mm-hmm. takes about 10 years for the virus to progress. And with it, after the 10 years, um, I tested um, for AIDS. And when I say I tested for AIDS, uh, my T-cell count had dropped to three. So I was like well within the death zone. And this happened like overnight. Because I had been seeing the doctor regularly. But this happened overnight uh, because of stress. And I want to say that stress will take you out faster than anything else. But I was doing some work, some incredible work for the church. And when I get into something, I really get into it. And I was so embedded in my work uh, that I was stressed out to the point that my T-cell count had dropped to three. I was walking around with pneumocystic pneumonia and didn't know it. When I got to the doctor's office uh, and he told me uh, that I had AIDS, um, they put me in the hospital. I was in the hospital for about, oh, four or five weeks, I guess, because they kept looking for this, looking for that, searching for this. Um, And they finally found the right cocktail for me. And when the doctor said, are you ready to go back to work, because at the time I was working for the bank, the doctor said, are you ready to go back to work? And I said, no, I can't go back to work. And the reason I couldn't go back to work is because the last night that I left the bank, I was so sick. I came out of the door, and you remember back in the day they used to have the smoking bench where people mm-hmm. go out and smoke? Mm-hmm. They were out, so two two friends of mine from work were out there smoking, and I remember one of them saying, poor thing, he has lost so much weight, and that stayed in my mind. And I'm like, oh, my God. Um, and so the doctor said, well, I, I told him, I said, I can't go back to work. He said, well, what do you want to do? I said, I'll go back to school. He said, well, what are you going to study? I said, broadcast journalism. Now, mind you, I wanted to be a journalist since I was in third grade, okay? Okay, uh-huh. I wanted to be, I wanted to, I want, I, when I was in the third grade, I was the kid that would come home from school every day, wolf down uh, whatever I could eat, do my homework, and, of course, take off my school clothes and then go out and play a little bit. But, but at 5.30, I had to be at home in front of the TV watching Walter Cronkite do the CBS Evening News because I wanted see, to be Walter Cronkite. Okay? See, I knew you were my brother. <laughs> no, <that's laughs> you know, before, before we go into this part, I have a question. One of the things that also, even in reading your book and looking at things that you do, is you have a deep faith. When your cousin died from AIDS and did, did you and and then you went through all that and and like you talked about your time when you were when you were using crack and how you even at one point in time when you wanted to die but you still had faith did you ever have a moment when you sort of either said like God why did you take her or 
why, God, why are, you, why are you dragging me through this? You know, why don't you just let me go? I failed you. Did, did it ever challenge your faith? No. I never had that moment where I questioned God, why me, why me, why me? And, and, and I think part of that, too, is going back to my mom. My mom had mm-hmm. suffered lung cancer, brain cancer, a series of strokes. I was taking care of her while I was sick myself, but I never heard her complain that one mm-hmm. time. Even when I was diagnosed with HIV, she told me, baby, it's going to be all right. We're going to make it through this. You're going to be fine. And I believe that. Um, but I think what it did for me my faith, watching my mom go through it, the things that she went through, I think that it gave me a, 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 a greater faith. And, I, and I'll, I'll go back. I think that faith started long ago when I was a little boy and when my mom first introduced me to church. And don't get it twisted. I'm not, I'm not one of these uh, people who can quote every scripture in the Bible, okay? Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm, not that, I'm not that person. But I think it was at that early age that I learned about faith, that there was something bigger and greater than me. And, I've, and that faith has stood with me through the test of time, throughout all of my life. Um, I believe that there is something greater than me and that it can help me to get through any situation. Even when I was in my crack cocaine addiction, and I was in that addiction for only about nine months, which people say, you know, that's not long. You know, in the grand scheme of things, it's not long, but it was way too long for me because it had me Mm -hmm. doing things that I never dreamt I would be doing. You know, I never dreamt I'd be behind the dumpster waiting on a hit, you know. Mm -hmm. Um, But my faith is still just as important to me today as it was then. And I didn't realize it coming up, you know, uh, just how important it would be. But I think that it's because of my faith that I've been able to endure all of these things. Because, um, and my, 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 this is one thing that I tell people, you know, from my workshops. One, the, the, if you don't take anything else, take this. Always believe in yourself. Always believe that there is something higher, some power that is higher and stronger than you, and you can get through any and every obstacle. And so it's that kind of faith that has sustained me and brought me through all of the things that we've talked about so far. Okay. Well, with that, we're going to take another, another break. And you know what? That's what faith is, not, you know, you can, some people can do scriptures, but faith, that, that's what we're talking about. And we will be right back with more from LeWayne. I'll be talking to the famous, the not-so-famous, the lady next door, that person who has a story, who may, you might walk past a million times, and you see them, you're like, what's their deal? I'm going to tell you what their deal is. People who are doing things and making changes in big ways and in little ways, but changes that help us all grow and be more human. This show is for thinkers and dreamers, people who want to know, people who 
want to see beyond the black and white for their neighborhood or their community. I want to get an idea about a world view, a local view. I want to learn things that they can take on and make them say, hmm, and apply in their life. My son often said, you know, mom, you'll talk to anybody. And people will always say, I come up and I'll have some interesting people. And it's like, no, you just collect stories and you just collect people. And so I think that these people who I'm talking to are part of that collection. They're part of these memories, these great stories. They're my collection. <laughs> my name is Michelle Elizabeth Brown, and my show is Collections by Michelle. Well, welcome back, Luane. Okay, one thing about you is like you are resilient. You are the comeback kid. And I love that. Like I, I was that kid too who, I mean, I've always listened to NPR. I wanted to watch the news. I had a little newspaper. And here <laughs> at this point in time, you know, when people said, oh, well, do you want to go back to the bank? You said, no. I'm going to go right. to school. <laughs> exactly. I mean, you just did that, that, that course adjustment and went on to do something else and quite well, thank you. You know, I mean, you ended up in public radio. You got to Edward R. Murrow. Right. You went to school. And I remember you saying that sometimes, hey, you were the oldest one in that classroom. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You know, I used to come in the class. I remember when the semester first started. Uh, some of the students would ask me if I was the instructor. You know, I'm 40 years old, you know, mm -hmm. um, and I went back to school at 40 years old, but that was during the time when I was really sick. Um, but I was determined. You know, when the doctor said, you'll go back to school, what do you want to do? I'll go back to school. I was sick at that time, but I was still determined that I was going to do something with my life. Because up until this point, I had just been doing things. I wasn't really living my life. I wasn't doing the things that I wanted to do. And, and, and even at that point, I knew I had a story to tell because I had been through the, the sexual abuse as a child. I'd been through the abandonment issues. I had been through these bad relationships, a series of bad relationships that I talk about in this book. And um, I had been through the uh, crack cocaine addiction. I had been through all of these things. I had, I had found uh, this, this, this spiritual rebirth. And, um, and so when, when I went back to school, I could have gone back to school at 40 years old to become an engineer or whatever I wanted to be, something that I could make some good money, you know? Mm -hmm, <laughs> But because I knew I had this story to tell, and I believe everyone has a story to tell and a lesson to teach, because I knew I had this story to tell, I decided to go back to school to become a news journalist. And the reason I decided to, to pursue that childhood dream as a news journalist versus going in for the money <laughs> mm -hmm, mm -hmm. is because... I knew I needed the legitimacy that being a news journalist would give me in order for people to even listen to my story. 
Mm-hmm. Did you get that? Yeah. Uh-huh. I knew wow. I needed the legitimacy that being a news journalist could give me in order for people to even listen to my story because there are a lot of people like me, you know, mm-hmm. uh, may not have experienced everything that I've experienced, but there are a lot of people like me. And so what I didn't count on was when I went back to school that God would bless everything that I touched, Mm. everything that I touched. Forty years old, graduated with honors, uh, was on the forensic speech team, uh, won all types of forensic awards, had the opportunity to travel the world competing for my college uh, forensic speech team. And after that, ended up with a great job in public radio. Um, I remember the first year that I was in public radio. And listen, all of this is from 40 years old. I'm only 54 mm-hmm. years old now. Mm-hmm. I remember the first year as a reporter, I was at the Associated Press Awards uh, with my my team. And this guy from another station was there, and they would call his name up for this award and this award and this award and this award. And that year, I think I inked out maybe a third place in this and that, you know, maybe a couple of third places. But I, I made it up in my mind that the next year, they would be calling me for some first place awards. And that's exactly what happened. Uh, And the next year, that's what happened. And the next year. And so it got to the point where they were calling his name, my name, his name, my name. (laughs) So So which one of them is it this year? Exactly. And so, um, and after that, um, you know, that's when I got, I got, I remember one day I was at work. And I had started working on my book. I actually finished the book. And um, I got a call from one of my advisors at, at school, and she was telling me that um, the Alabama community college system was looking for alumnus to share their stories of the challenges they had getting into school and the successes that they've had since school. And she said, Luane, people really know, need to know your story because I had reached a point where I was able to open up and share my story with certain people, okay? And mm-hmm. my advisors at school uh, were a couple of the people that I, was, I, would, I would open up to. Uh, and she said, Luane, people really need to, to hear your story. And so the contest involved writing an essay, um, talking about the challenges and the successes. And so I submitted, which was actually the introduction to my book. I turned mm-hmm. it into an essay, submitted the essay, and uh, it got overwhelming support. Uh, and I was a little bit nervous because, you know, as a writer, as a journalist, I had, I had a little screw-up in my essay. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. A little, punctu- a little punctua- punctuation uh, uh, screw-up. And I was like, because the finalists, they were, they were going to select, like, three finalists uh, to put on social media so that the alum and the public could vote on them. 
And I started thinking, what if I actually make it into the finals? You know, I'd be so embarrassed that, you know, this little punctuation error is in there. And so I was, I was, you know, I'm, I'm a stressor. And so I was, I was, I was stressing out about this, this little punctuation mark. And I called the people at the Alabama Community College System. And I said, uh, look, I'm Luane Childry. I submitted an essay, and the girl stopped me in the middle of the conversation. She said, Luane Childry, we already know who you are. <laughs> she said, we have, we have read your essay over and over and over again. She said, Luane, not, not only have you survived, you have thrived. She said, and we're not the ones who vote, but if we were, you would be the winner. Wow. And as it turns out, um, God did bless me uh, to win that, that, that honor, and I think that's a, a very distinguished honor. And I think it says a lot for my community uh, because I shared, as, as you opened up the show, you were saying how I poured my soul into this. Uh, I shared my whole self in this essay, in this book, and uh, for it to be so received on social media and for me to eventually be the winner says a lot for uh, how far we've come when it comes to um, uh, gay acceptance. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think it says a lot, especially in the South, because, you know, I'm I'm talking about a college in Alabama. And... uh, I think it says a lot about how far we have come. Still, we have a long way to go because, and the reason I say that is because although I won this prestigious title as the alumnus of the year, uh, 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 the alumnus of the first 50 years of the Alabama Community College system, I didn't get the press. Mm -hmm. I didn't get the big write-up in the, the Birmingham News, you know. I think I got a couple of uh television interviews when I was presenting the award, the scholarship, the $5,000 scholarship to the student in Birmingham, but I never got my story covered. And, um, and so, but I'm okay with it because uh, it's not about me. It's about what this story can do for other people. So, but yeah, so, uh, you know, and from the end, and then so, and so, God bless me to be in the position at the, at that time that having this essay come out was great publicity for my book because I had written the book even before the book came out. People already knew about it on social media mm-hmm. because of this contest. And so just a few months later, about six months later, the book comes out. And uh, I'm really thankful that it it has done so well and is continuing to do well. As a matter of fact, go ahead. Well, we'll finish up, Pop, and I want to ask you a question. I was just saying that uh, it's continuing to do well. I started out as a self-published author, and I was recently picked up by a small press. And we have, they have great plans for this 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 book it, it's a soft cover now but it's being uh, uh re-released as a hard hard cover uh they're also doing a children's version of this book uh 
uh, get targeting kids from ages 6 to 12. It's going to be mm-hmm. fully illustrated. Got a call the other day uh, telling me that they had already selected the illustrator. Uh, we're also doing a journal uh, titled Peeling Back My Layers, and mm-hmm. we're going to do an audio version of this book. Plus, um, I'm getting my own imprint. <laughs> so wow. I will be... I will be looking for other talents, uh, mm-hmm. you know, uh, to to go along with this. So I'm I'm really excited about it, and uh, it's for you know anybody who um, is in the LGBT plus community or its allies. Uh, you know, we're looking for a wide variety of stories to tell. Because, you- like I always say, everybody has a story to tell and a lesson to mm-hmm. teach. Well, you know, I might tell you. And I understand exactly why, you know, how you said your journalism so that you could get to go. But, okay, you and I went home to watch the news, okay? You and I like National Public Radio. But how was it? I mean, you know, that you chose, like many people go like, oh, they want to go on whatever is the top station to do whatever. But you went into a public radio setting. And when you went in, did they try to uh, pigeonhole you like, oh, you're going to do this, you can do that? Or how did you develop your career with them in that media to where you ended up this Edward R. Murrow Award? You know, um, I feel so blessed uh, in so many ways, but especially when it comes to this journalism career because <laughs> – like I said, since third grade, this was a dream that was deferred, but, you know, was it was able to, to come back to life. And um, I, I used to always, when I did my internship uh, in Alabama, 3340, my goal then was to be a television news anchor. Mm-hmm. When I was a kid coming up, I wanted to be the first black news anchor in Birmingham. Okay, mm-hmm. <laughs> so I'm I'm dating myself, but I wanted to be the first black news anchor on television in Birmingham, Alabama. Uh, a, a, another guy beat me to it, uh, and uh, um, he's he's done really well with his career. Um, but um, for me, after school, I would have been happy to end up in Timbuktu. Uh, you know, uh, Michigan, <laughs> mm-hmm. or or Shaville, Mississippi. You know, wherever. Mm-hmm. I just wanted a job, and so for me, it got to the point where I was sending out all of these resumes, um, and and every day, you know, just sending these resumes and looking for a job, looking for a job, looking in all these small towns, small cities, because I knew that's just the way it works in this business. You don't start out in New York City. You know? mm-hmm. <laughs> and, um, and so after about a year, uh, it got to the point where I was like, you know, God, you know, maybe this is just not for me. You know, maybe this was not meant to be. You know, maybe there is something else that you want me to do. And, um, and so I, I made a conscious decision that that day would be the last day that I look for a job in um, in this news field. And I was looking in radio, television, wherever I could get, you know. I wanted something in, in uh, broadcast journalism. 
as opposed to print journalism, but I, I wasn't finding anything. And on that last day, there was this little voice that told me, go back to your computer. And I went back to my computer, and I don't know how I ended up on this site. It was not for Mississippi Public Broadcasting. It was another site. But there was a job listing for an arts reporter with Mississippi Public Broadcasting. I was not qualified for it based on what they had written there. But I applied anyway. Two weeks later, I get a phone call from them. I went down for the interview. During the interview, uh, and I was interviewed by maybe eight people, okay? Mm -hmm. <laughs> and so during, and during this interview, uh, the uh, human resources director is in there. And he's like, what's your, what's your end game? What's, what's your ultimate goal? I said, well, my ultimate goal is to become a news anchor. And he was like, oh, you have got to meet our news director. You've got to meet her, blah, 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 blah. And after that interview, he took me around to her office, met her. She uh, showed me around. I gave her my demo tape. Uh, I had driven over to Mississippi. By the time I drove back to Birmingham and I was walking up the steps to my house in Birmingham, my phone was ringing. And it was MPB. And uh, the news director was saying, uh, I had the opportunity to listen, to, to watch your, your demo, and I think that there's something that we can work with here. Uh, can you come back down for another interview? And I was like, sure. And she called me back the next day, and she said, well, the, the job that we're thinking of is not the, the job that you applied for, um, it's another job, and this is for an anchor's position. Now, listen, I had never, ever reported a day in my life, mm -hmm. okay? Uh, would you be interested? And uh, I said, sure. So wow. I went back down, I interviewed, and Michelle, I totally screwed up the interview. <laughs> they were asking me, they were asking me the simplest questions, okay? They were asking me, in Birmingham, what is the station number for public broadcasting? I didn't know. Mm -hmm. I knew it was on the end of the dial, but I didn't know. <laughs> um, they were asking me, well, who do you read every day? I read the Birmingham News, blah, blah, blah. I read the Times. I read, you know, I read the Post. They were asking me, well, who do you listen to? What stations do you listen to? Where do you get your news from? Uh, Tom Joyner. <laughs> okay. Oh, wow. All right. Okay. So goes to show you how green I was in this. You know, I listen to, mm -hmm. you know, broadcast network news and all that. But, you know, Tom Joyner, that's why I got my news on the radio. Mm -hmm. um, and so I, I kind of screwed up the interview. And I knew I screwed up the interview. You know, the first time I went home, like, oh, I nailed it, I nailed it. The second time I was driving home, oh, I screwed it up, I screwed it up. I didn't hear from them for a month. And I was too embarrassed to do a follow-up. You know, I used to send a, a thank you note or something like that. I was, I was too embarrassed. And, but something told me, that little voice again told me, said, why don't you call the news? Uh, send the news director an, e an email just to let her know to keep you in, in their thoughts. 
and I did. And within three minutes, she had emailed me back, and she was telling me that they were thinking about me because a position had just come available, and they thought I would be perfect for it. So this was an entry-level reporter's position. And I knew it wasn't make, paying the money that <laughs> I needed to make, mm-hmm. but I knew that in this business you have to make sacrifices, mm-hmm. you know. And I knew that it would get me to that point where I really needed to be at some point. And so I went in, I interviewed with them, I got the job, uh, and then things started happening. Uh, I started as a uh, entry-level news reporter, ended up being the senior news reporter, ended up being the host of uh, All Things Considered, ended up uh, being the assistant news director. Uh, so, so many wonderful things uh, came from, from that experience at uh, Mississippi Public Broadcasting that has really gotten me to this point where I am today. That's great. Well, we're going to take one last break with LaWayne Childry on Collections by Michelle Brown, and we'll be right back. I'll be talking to the famous, the not-so-famous, the lady next door, that person who has that story, who may, you might walk past a million times, and you see them, you're like, what's their deal? I'm going to tell you what their deal is. People who are doing things and making changes in big ways and in little ways, but changes that help us all grow and be more human. This show is for thinkers, dreamers, people who want to know, people who want to see beyond the black and white or their neighbor, uh, their neighborhood or their, their community, who want to get an idea about the world view, a local view, who want to learn things that they can take on and make them say, hmm, and apply in their life. My son often said, you know, mom, you'll talk to anybody. And people will always say, I come up and I'll have some interesting people. And it's all like, no, you just collect stories and you just collect people. And so I think that these people who I'm talking to are part of that collection. They're part of these memories, these great stories. They're my collection. <laughs> my name is Michelle Elizabeth Brown, and my show is Collections by Michelle. Well, we're back. Luane, it has been such a joy to talk to you. One of the oh, reasons wow. why I, I really wanted to talk to you about is because your resilience, uh, the things that you've seen in life, and, you know, nothing, nothing has stopped you, and, and you're, you're open to looking at what's the next step. And I'd like to ask you, how do you feel that, the intersections that have influenced your life, all these things that you've done, how have they impacted the directions you've taken and how will it impact your future work? Oh, wow. I think all of the experiences that I've had in life have um, have made me the man that I am today. Uh, they have all strengthened me, and 
I think that from here I understand uh, that almost every successful person begins with two beliefs. Uh, They believe that their future can be better than their present. And they also believe that they have the power to make it so. Wow. Yeah, um, and, you know, and I think that what you just said, that comes through so strongly in your book Um, because that's what you said. You went from that little boy to all these issues that you challenges that you overcome that you that you never gave up even when you were sick you continued to do things you were working with the church and even when you were sick and I and how you didn't give up and you didn't limit yourself to the things that you could do like the sky was the limit and I mean we still see from that ideal about this book to where it's growing growing a children's book a journal I mean you know I'm waiting for you to tell me that they've signed Denzel to portray well, you, although you look well, much better. <laughs> well, you, you know, I, I, we didn't talk about that, but that is part of, of what's happening with this book, too. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I've been blessed to uh, have a new mentor in my life. His name is Joel Eisenberg. Uh, Joel is the man in Hollywood when it comes to independent filmmaking. He's a producer, director. He's currently working on the Joe Lewis uh, story with Bill Duke. Mm. Um, Yeah, and um, I was so thrilled because, you know, we were at the Joe Lewis Arena uh, Mm -hmm. for Fire and Eat, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, And and so um, uh, Joel has taken a real interest in this book. Uh, this story, Joel, Joel reminds me every day, he says, well, Wayne, you need to just step out of your body and just look back at this story and see how remarkable it is. But uh, he wants to see this story uh, done as a, a screenplay. And um, I'm thankful that, uh, you know, that he's, you know, at every angle, you know, he's, he's trying to make it happen. And so I know it's going to happen. Uh, I've been in meetings uh, where people are asking me, well, who do you think should play you? And somebody said, I think Terrence Howard should play you. <laughs> and mm, so, still you know, not good looking enough. <laughs> uh, okay. <laughs> uh, but uh, it's interesting. Uh, I think you would be a good candidate for, for my mom. Uh, uh, she oh, was so beautiful. Hey. Yeah. Well, I, I loved your mother. I, you know, I felt your mother as I read it. I, you know, I really felt your mother. I felt her spirit, and it really touched me, your relationship with her and hearing that. Luane, how can people, if they want your book, if they want to know what you're doing or, or to stay, you know, in touch with you, what's the best way for them to reach you? Oh, wow. Uh, social media, uh, Facebook, mm-hmm. Luane mm-hmm. Orlando Childry, uh, or my author page, Luane Childry Author, uh, Twitter at L Childry, uh, Instagram, uh, Luane Childry, and apps uh, uh, via social media. Uh, I think I connect better. <laughs> mm-hmm. 
uh, I, I think I've, I've, I've been able to connect uh, with so many people on social media, and I, I really welcome, welcome that. And I like, to, I like to leave people knowing that they are the most important person that there is uh, when it comes to, 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 to our relationship, that they really matter. And so I love that connection that uh, social media offers, and I welcome that. I welcome people to follow me and connect with me and actually reach out and, and let's have a real conversation. That's great. Well, Luane, our time together has come to an end. Until oh, I can get thing, to Nashville. Okay, tell me. Oh, yeah. One, one, one thing you were, you were asking, how, how they can connect with me and how they can buy the book also. Yeah, the book oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah, the book is available through Amazon, uh, Barnes & Noble, iBooks, uh, and you can also order it directly through me, uh, and I'll autograph it and send it to you. But uh, you can go to uh, com. That's my website. Well, the, well, the children's book and the uh, – well, that the same way for the children's book, the journal, and all these other projects, well, that, is that the way that they'll – like especially if they wanted to buy the children's book through your web, your site directly, or will those yeah, also that, be on Amazon? Those will also be on Amazon. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, it'll, be, it'll be on all the major sites, and those will actually be um, in hopefully all of the bookstores nationwide and uh, all of the libraries also. Oh wow, that's great! I mean, I can I, I can already think of people who I want to buy that children's book for. I mean, wow. that is just awesome. Well, my darling, uh, thank you so much for being my guest tonight. Um, Michelle, thank you so much. Yeah, you know, like I said, you are my brother from another mother, and right. uh, I mean, really, I appreciate you, and that's what we do here on Collections by Michelle Brown. So with that, I am going to say goodnight to you and to our listening audience. And I hope that you'll all join me next week when I'll introduce you to another amazing individual who's living between the lines, standing boldly in the crosshairs of their intersectionality and creating change right here on Collections by Michelle Brown. Good night. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.